time to welcome to this uh, special uh, North Cotton Cancer Center uh, grand round uh, focused on uh, SBIR opportunities at the National Cancer Institute and uh, beyond. Uh, one of the great pleasures of me arriving just about a year ago to be Cancer Center Director was to realize just what an entrepreneurial cancer center we have. Uh, going all the way back to, to, to Metarex, um, and you can see Mike and Paul here, uh, to Saldara, to Immunex, to uh, Dose Optics, to Karen Surgical. We've clearly been um, an ecosystem in which innovation has thrived and, and, and has been fostered. So thank you all for joining us today. It was just about a month ago that Bob Willock and the Cancer Center got a query from Mike Weingarten at NCI about whether we would like to have a site visit from the uh, uh, NCI SBIR development uh, team. And they wanted to learn more about what um, they had heard was an extremely active portfolio of innovation here at Dartmouth, and also educate us about what tools the SBIR Development Center has that um, might further accelerate uh, innovation here at the Cancer Center. And as you can imagine, Bob uh, quickly responded and, and we started planning for this very special uh, opportunity. Um, and there's so much to talk about that we scheduled, actually scheduled a two-hour grand round for today. We realize not everyone will be able to stay for that. Um, but um, we are excited to present this program today. And I really want to encourage everybody um, to take full advantage of this opportunity and ask lots of uh, questions. So our visitors today are Michael Weingarten, who is director of the NCI SBIR Development Center. Um, Dr. Andrew Kurtz is their, uh, on their therapeutics and diagnostic team. And Dr. Corey Hallett is from the Immunotherapy uh, Metrics Collection and Analysis Group. So what, welcome. Thank you for joining us here. In the first part, our visiting experts are going to provide us with an overview of key information about the mechanisms in place at the SBIR uh, Development Center. And we'll start with an overview for Michael on uh, the, the program, and then Corey's going to follow up talk about uh, funding opportunities, including contract opportunities, and Andy's going to talk to us about tips on how to apply. There'll be lots of time for uh, questions after each presentation. And in the second part, we'll move on to North Cotton Cancer Center case studies. And again, there'll be time for questions after each presentation when our local entrepreneurs will uh, present to you the story of how they came to successfully innovate. And our uh, presenters on the darker side are all well-known, uh, an all-star cast of uh, accomplished local biomedical entrepreneurs. Thank you, Jay Greer, who's the director of the New Ventures uh, Office at the Geisel School of Medicine and the CEO at Seldara. Rick Lard, um, who is the co-founder of Cairn Surgical and who was a, a Synergy Clinician um, Entrepreneur Fellow. And Lionel Lewis, um, uh, a professor of medicine here in the Cancer Center, who is the CMO of Seven Hills uh, Pharmaceuticals. So before we get started, just a couple notes. Uh, welcome to those at um, other uh, North Cotton Cancer Center sites who are joining us uh, by video. Uh, please note that in the second hour of the presentation, we, we will briefly be going uh, dark to facilitate the presentation of some proprietary uh, in information. So don't be surprised uh, there. 
Um, the program today is not eligible for CME present, uh, CME credit, so you'll not find a code here today. Um, and we still have some available time tomorrow morning for one-on-one -on -one meetings with our uh, NCI SBIR Center visitors. So to arrange for a minute, me please email uh, uh, Paula. So uh, please join me then in welcoming our first speaker, Michael Weinberg. Everybody hear me okay? Very good. Okay. Uh, well, thanks very much for the invitation. It's great to see a, a full house here. Um, we're, we're happy to be here to talk to you a little bit about the uh, Small Business Innovation Research Program at the National Cancer Institute. Um, before I get started, let me just get a show of hands of uh, folks in the audience who have applied for either an SBIR or STTR from, from the NIH. Oh, okay, so a fair number of you. Very good. Um, and how many of you have received awards from the NIH? Excellent. Okay. Well, we're, we're here to help, help increase some of those numbers, too. So, um, so I'm going to give a, a program overview, um, as Steve, Steve mentioned. Um, and I'm going to be followed by Corey. She's going to talk about some of uh, the new funding opportunities that we've recently announced. Uh, we actually have uh, 15 new contract funding opportunities that just came out about a month ago. And uh, uh, Corey will delve into those. And then, and then Andy will uh, round things up with really giving you some advice and tips on how to apply to the program. Typically, what, what do we look for? What does is, what is peer review look for? So again, uh, happy to answer any questions that you guys have as we go throughout this. Uh, please uh, just raise your hand as we're moving along here. So what is, what is uh, SBR and STTR? Uh, it's actually known as, it's a, uh, what is known as a government set-aside program. And what that means is that we get a percentage of the NCI budget every year. And it's, it's exclusively focused on funding uh, small businesses, um, many of whom collaborate, as, as you know, with academic institutions. So uh, we fund, we've, the funding has to go to a small business, but um, a lot of times um, it involves uh, a uh, uh, academic institution trying to uh, translate their technology and spinning it out of a university. And so um, most of our, or many of our, many of our uh, grants and contracts um, involve a collaboration with the university. Um, the, uh, the differences between SBR and STTR is that with the Small Business Technology Transfer Program is it actually requires a collaboration with an academic institution. Um, there are different uh, set-aside amounts, um, which I can show you here uh, for this program. 3% um, of the NCI extramural budget, which is the funding that we spend outside of the National Cancer Institute, um, goes to the SBR program. And 0.45% uh, goes to the uh, Small Business Technology Transfer Program. And I'll go through uh, just some of the key differences between this, these two programs in just a second. And if you look at our budget this year, it's, it's at $167 million. Uh, but if you look at the budget for SBR and STTR across the NIH, and there are 23 different institutes uh, cutting across 
many disease areas that participate in this program. Each, each institute at the NIH runs their own SBR program. Budget for the program as a whole is actually over a billion dollars now. So you're talking about significant funds. Why should you, as, a, uh, as an academic or as a small business, be interested in, in applying for the SBR program? Well, it, it provides seed funding for innovative technology development. Uh, typically, we will be the first source of funds that a small business will apply for, maybe after they've raised some funding from friends and family, but we will fund projects at a very early stage of development. And um, uh, we're always going to be uh, funding ahead of, for example, a venture investor and, and usually even ahead of angel investors uh, in the projects that we, we invest in. So it's not a loan. There's no repayment required. We, uh, we fund projects through either grants or contracts, and um, the, the, the funds are yours to work with to, to move the technology forward. We don't take any sort of a uh, equity position either in your company, so it's non-dilutive funding to you as a company. And I'm sure our companies will talk about some of the uh, other advantages of how they've used SBIR and, and helping grow their company, helping advance their technologies forward. The other benefits are the IP rights are retained by the small business. Um, all applications go through the Center for Scientific Review. So everything is peer-reviewed, uh, just like um, all other NIH grants and contracts. And if you're successful in actually getting an award from, from the NCI SBR program, that can really help raise the profile of your company and get you noticed by others that might invest in your company in the future. Um, the success rate for the program, uh, if you apply for a phase one award, which is a small amount of funds, about up to $300,000, is about 10 to 15%. If you apply for a phase two awards, it's actually more uh, in the 25% range. What are the key differences between the programs? Um, well, SBIR permits research institution partners, such as universities, um, so, and, and small businesses, it, it, when you're applying for an, our earliest stage of funding, which is a phase one, uh, you can outsource up to a third of the dollars um, as part of a phase one project. Uh, for phase two awards, which is the next phase of funding that you can apply for, uh, you can actually outsource 50% uh, of, of the dollars to fund those activities. Um, in order to be eligible, the principal investigators, uh, primary employment, must be with the small business for the duration of the project period. For an STTR, again, the difference there is that it requires a, uh, a research institution as a partner on the project. The goal is a collaboration. The goal is to translate and transfer technology developed by the research institution. So, uh, so at least 40% of, of the work has to be by, uh, done by the small business concern, but at least 30% of the work has to be done by the U.S. research institution. And there has to be an intellectual property agreement in place between the small business and uh, the research institution also in, in order to be eligible. Uh, one of the benefits of the STTR is that the principal investigator actually can stay and continue to work at the university. They don't actually have to leave the university um, in order to participate on the, on the project. So if you, know, if you want to continue your research, but you've got a really promising technology, um, the STTR can be a really valuable resource for you to pursue. Overall, uh, what are the eligibility requirements? Uh, 
You have to be a small business concern that's organized for profit here in the United States, uh, 500 or fewer employees. Uh, and you've got to be majority owned by, uh, majority US owned by individuals and independently operated. Um, that used to be the only way that you could, you could be eligible for the program. About four years ago, Congress did make a change in this program, which also allows us to fund companies that are majority backed by venture capital operating um, uh, firms uh, hedge or hedge funds. So that is a significant change in the program. Not as important at the early stages, but as, as uh, companies move into clinical development and the high costs associated with that, that actually becomes a really key eligibility criteria because m many companies, when they go out and they raise venture funds, that'll put them um, over the 50% in terms of majority ownership by, by venture capital operating companies. Um, so again, you can still be eligible. You have to be owned by more than one VC, majority owned by more than one VC in order to, um, to meet that criteria. Just one example of a success story. Um, uh, this is a, uh, a researcher, Avi Spira, who uh, actually um, uh, got, initially got a lot of R01 funding uh, from, from the NCI and this was to develop a molecular test for the early detection of lung, lung cancer. He, start, he started the development of that test uh, with his R01 funding, and he advanced it to the point that he thought he had some, some uh, important IP that he then spun off into a company called Allegro Diagnostics. And uh, through the funding that he got through, through SBIR, he was actually able to move that all the way to commercialization, and that... Uh, that company was actually purchased by Johnson and Johnson, and, I'm sorry, by Verisite. And um, Percepta is now a product that is on the market uh, because of SBR support. Just a little bit of a look at um, our portfolio of projects. Um, uh, this is how we spend our funding. We, we actually fund at any given time. We're funding um, over 400 different projects that really cut across uh, technology areas across the cancer spectrum. Uh, as you can see, therapeutics <coughs> represents the largest uh, overall share of our projects. And, and again, Andy manages uh, a team of our folks that, that manage our, our therapeutics and diagnostics projects. Uh, therapeutics is then followed by uh, cancer diagnostics and um, devices uh, for cancer research, particularly cancer imaging being a very large part, an important part of our portfolio. Um, and then we also fund areas such as uh, research tools, uh, devices for cancer therapy, and, um, and also digital health being uh, also another very important part of our project. We fund, as I mentioned earlier, we fund our projects through both grants and through contracts. Uh, Investigator-initiated research is, is a very important part of uh, what we fund. Um, we, uh, and Corey will be going through some of our funding opportunity announcements that really are more, more investigator-initiated oriented. But we also come out with these targeted funding announcements, uh, again, that Corey will be talking about too, where we see emerging opportunities in the field. And so we set aside specific amounts of funds that we want to use to seed the development of those areas. And Corey will be talking about that a little bit too. So SBR is a three-phase program. <coughs> in terms of funding, um, uh, phase one being a proof of concept study. Uh, again, that's uh, up to $300,000 and over, uh, we will fund projects typically six to 12 months in duration. 
Um, if that uh, if the work is successful with the phase one project, then companies can apply for a phase two SBR or STTR, and that really is to fund the full the continued research and development of that technology that was initiated with phase phase one. When you get to applying for a phase two. Uh, there, there's a really important piece to your application, which is your commercialization strategy. That'll be a, a key component to the review. In addition to your scientific plan, the commercialization plan is really critical for your Phase Two award. Uh, you can apply for up to $2 million in funding um, for the Phase Two, and typically that's a two-year two project. <coughs> and then we launched a, a new funding mechanism at the, uh, at the NCI, uh, going back to 2009, so about nine years ago, we call it the SBIR uh, Phase 2B Bridge Award. Um, and what, the reason that we launched the bridge program back in 2009 is that um, we, we, we thought that with the amount of funds you were able to access with Phase 1 and Phase 2, that was enough for many of our companies to gather important initial data, but it really wasn't enough in many uh, cases to advance the technology to a key inflection point. So uh, we were, a lot of our, uh, the technologies that we were funding were running into valley of death issues where they weren't able to advance, advance their technologies further. So that's the goal of the bridge is um, you can apply, uh, when you're completing your phase two award, um, you can apply for up to $4 million in additional funds over a three year three-year time frame. And um, a key component of, of the review of this is we also expect uh, applicants to uh, raise matching funds as part of, their, part of their application. And the goal there is to use the NCI SBIR funding to help you as a small business raise, raise private sector funding. So uh, a key component to the review there is the strength of your private sector partners that are going to be providing the matching funds in that, in that application. So uh, we did an evaluation of this bridge program that I just mentioned uh, just last year. Um, we've uh, given a total of 21 bridge awards since we first launched that program, and uh, we've put about $51 million into those 21 awards. And um, I mentioned that the private sector, the matching component being a key important part of the review, what we found is that um, the, the fact that we're able to invest in these companies and help advance the technologies that they're developing um, has really been extremely helpful to a lot of the, uh, the companies we're funding in raising uh, matching dollars. They've been able to actually raise over $220 million in third-party matching funds um, over the course of their uh, bridge award. So we're actually getting about a four-to-one <laughs> leverage for the funds that we're putting into that program. And those funds are coming from venture investors, from strategic partners like uh, Big Pharma, and then also from, from angel investors. And as you see, the, the largest dollar-sized um, matching amounts are coming in the drug development area, which is what you would expect. But, but uh, uh, our diagnostics and device projects are also, uh, have also been successful in, in raising matching dollars, too. Uh, out of those 21 projects uh, that we have funded, uh, actually eight of them are currently on the market now. So it's, it's been also been a very successful program in moving technologies that we're funding all the way to patients. And these are just some of the examples of projects 
um, that, that have made it to the market. Uh, many of these are actually device-oriented projects, many of them in the imaging space, as an example, but there, there are several that are drug development-oriented uh, and diagnostics-related uh, projects, too. <coughs> So the different funding mechanisms uh, that we offer uh, through grants, um, if you have applied for an SBIR from us, you've most likely applied to what is known as the SBIR omnibus solicitation. Again, this is our investigator-initiated funding uh, opportunity. Usually comes out in January of every year, and then it has three different receipt dates, January, April, and September. And uh, under the omnibus, we actually ask you as a company to submit your ideas. It's not, it's not directed research. We want you to come to us with your ideas for whatever it is that you're developing. And if it's a, if it's a technology that fits within the cancer space that is product focused, it very likely will fit in under the, under the omnibus. Um, we do occasionally come out with targeted grant announcements also. We actually have one announcement that's where we're encouraging applicants to come in in the area of global health. So that is, uh, you know, several times a year we'll come out with some, some more targeted grant announcements. Uh, all these are available up on our website if you're interested in taking a look at them. And, and again, Corey will go into a little bit more detail on these. But if you're interested in seeing the latest funding announcements, I encourage you to go up to sbir.cancer.gov and you can sign up for, on our email list and and then whenever we come out with a new funding uh, announcement, we'll, uh, we'll immediately, we actually put those out uh, frequently so that you can, you can be uh, the first to, to know that we're, we're looking for applicants in, in a given area. And then we have our contract funding opportunity announcements. Uh, these are areas that are priority to the NCI that we're, we want to encourage applications. And these, these are all milestone-based uh, milestone awards. And Corey will give a couple of examples of those. Um, so th this just shows you the, the application and review process uh, for applying to our program, uh, the steps that you go through. So you submit your, your, your grant application to NIH electronically. Uh, we use the same process that um, all uh, NIH programs use in terms of applying uh, for a grant. Uh, it goes through review at the NIH Center for Scientific Review. Uh, then you uh, typically, uh, a couple, several months after you, you uh, submit your application, uh, you'll get a summary statement and a score. Um, we get the, those scores also on the program side. And then we have a process, as, process internally where we, di we discuss all the grants that were scored within a given funding range. And then we, uh, based on the merits of each application, we, we recommend to our management and to our advisory council on which projects uh, we think should be funded. Uh, those then go through the uh, grants uh, administration process uh, and then move on to funding. So if you look at the amount of time, the average amount of time between when you apply to our program and then when projects are funded, it used to take about 12 months or even longer for uh, grants to get funded. We've on an average basis, we've been able to actually uh, move that down to about seven and a half to eight months. So we're very cognizant of the, the we know that you as a small business um, don't have a lot of, in the way of resources. So we, we do the, the best we can to, to move um, the grants process as quickly as we can to, to, get, to get you funded. So I was gonna talk just a little bit about 
you know, I, I focused on the funding side, which is obviously very important to, to all of you. Uh, I think what separates um, our program from, um, from the rest of the NIH is we manage, we manage the, the program very differently. Uh, we actually, uh, going back to, um, to 2008, um, and uh, on the re request of uh, the director of the NCI at that time, we actually set up a center uh, for managing, and, and our only job within the center is to manage uh, the SBIR and the STTR program. Uh, what that allows us to do, uh, because we, we spend 100% of our time just on SBIR, is in addition to providing funding, we're able to weave in a lot of other services and resources that you as a small business will need as you're developing your technology. So I, I thought I'd just give you a little bit of an overview of what some of those services are. You know, we oversee all the, um, the SBR and STTR projects um, that are funded across the NCI. Uh, we will spend time with any applicant that wants to apply to the program. If, they want, if you want to run your idea by us before you actually apply, We'll actually ask you to send us specific aims on your project, and we'll, we'll get on the phone with you and actually advise you on, on your specific aims and whether we see any, any gaps in, in your, uh, the project that you're considering. We do events like this. We do a lot of outreach. We probably do about 40 events across the country where we, we go. We, um, we, we go to different um, biotech um, associations. We go to universities. We really try to hit all the, the key spots around the country um, where we, we can meet with small companies or academic teams that are thinking about starting a small business and really educate you about the program. And the whole goal there is so that we can get the strongest applications into the program as possible. Um, we also ran, run a, a lot of training um, uh, opportunities through our program, and I'm going to give some examples of that. And then we we, we've built a very strong network with the investor community, too, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how we do that. So this is our team. We have a total of 14 different members of our, uh, of our team now, and um, we have 11 uh, uh, program directors, um, and each of them have a different uh, expertise area. So what will typically happen is uh, if you contact us with a specific request, we'll try to align you with, with a one of our program directors um, who has an expertise in your area and really can advise you the best. Uh, one of the training programs that we offer um, at, the, at the NCI, uh, this is a program uh, we started back in 2014. It's called the Innovation Corps Program or I-Corps Program. Um, not sure if you're familiar with this program, but it was a program that was initially started at the National Science Foundation. And it's an entrepreneurship <coughs> immersion program uh, that we offer to uh, the small business community. And, th and the goal of this program is uh, for, uh, we offer it to our phase one um, SBR and STTR companies, so right after you get your, your first award from us. And it really provides a process for helping you vet the technology that you're developing and really um, identify key aspects um, around the technology that are going to be key as you're trying to move it forward and move it towards commercialization. So it's an eight-week program where you as a team, uh, we actually have three-person uh, three teams for each company that go through this program. Uh, you're required as a, as a team that participates in the i program to actually go out and talk to customers over the course of those eight weeks. And uh, by doing that, 
you're able to much better define what your key value proposition is around the technology that you're developing, who is the, the, what is your niche for the technology that you're developing, who is the right customer that you should be targeting, um, what are the key activities that you, should, you need to pursue in terms of development path. So, for example, you start thinking about what your regulatory strategy should be around the technology, what should your reimbursement strategy should be, um, uh, who would potential partners be uh, that, could, uh, uh, that you could collaborate with in the development of your technology. So, so you, you start identifying potential strategic partners that as you're moving the technology forward, you might want to you might, might want to partner up with. And what we find is, um, as companies go through this program, as they engage in their interviews, the knowledge that they gain uh, is is incredible, and it really helps companies figure out where they need to shift strategy, where they need to pivot, uh, in order to uh, be successful in, in advancing their technology forward. In some cases, uh, companies find out that they don't really have a market um, that they should pursue and the project won't, will not go forward. Uh, but that's a valuable learning uh, to us too. But most of the time, it, the pivot actually involves really identifying the key market that, that you should focus on. Uh, just one example of a uh, company that went through the program. Uh, we've actually had a tw 125 teams that have now gone through our i program cutting across 19 different institutes at the NIH. This is a company called Gigagen, uh, an NCI-funded company. They went through the program back in 2014. And um, the, uh, the uh, uh, company, uh, uh, David Johnson from Gigagen, actually um, recently got published uh, when he wrote about his own experiences in going, going through Gigagen and going through i and how it directly benefited his company. And I mentioned the whole customer discovery process. Uh, going through that actually helped David identify a strategic partner that a couple of years after he went through the i program has now made an investment in, in his company. So he was actually able to raise $50 million uh, from, uh, from a strategic, strategic uh, partner um, out of Spain. And then they've also secured a licensing partnership, and they've launched their first fee-for-service uh, product. And this is for an a ultra-fast antibody discovery platform. Uh, and they've, they've also spun off a company now. And all, all that activity was, is tied to what they learned from going through the i program. Another thing that we offer to companies that participate in our program is our Investor Initiatives Program. Um, and essentially what... Uh, as a small business, it's really hard for you to uh, get noticed um, by, by the venture capital community, and we understand that. Uh, so because it's the NCI, uh, we can help open some of those doors. So the way our investor initiatives program works is we've developed relationships with um, about 60 of the top investors around the country, and these are investors uh, that cut across the venture capital uh, large pharma, large medical device um, uh, communities, uh, companies like J&J, &J, Merck, Pfizer, um, as examples. And uh, we have a, a team of those folks who actually serve on a, uh, on a review panel that we pull together once a year, and then we invite um, companies that we are funding through our program to actually submit a six-page application to us, uh, which is then reviewed by this investor panel. 
And the panel then uh, reviews those, they score them, and they help identify the top companies that we're funding in our portfolio. Um, and then what we do is we will fund those companies to go to the top private investor events around the country. So events like um, uh, redefining early stage investments, uh, which is an early stage uh, life sciences investment conference, uh, bio, the Bio Investor Forum, uh, Life Sciences Summit. Uh, these are all some of the top private investor events where you'll be able to meet with some of the, the, the investors that are looking uh, for deal flow, looking to invest in companies like your own. And um, uh, by doing that, uh, we've been able to actually help, help our companies secure funding from these follow-on investors. These are three examples of companies that have participated in our investor initiatives. Uh, one is on target which is developing an imaging agent. Um, they were able to actually raise $40 million in funding from uh, Johnson Johnson's venture arm. Uh, CellSite Technologies, company that's out of Stanford, uh, they were able to secure a partnership with Boehringer Ingelheim. They're participating in a head and neck, neck cancer a clinical study right now that using their, that's using their PET imaging agent for the study. And then JBS Sciences was able to close a partnership, um, and they, uh, uh, they have a diagnostics technology. And 69% of our selected awardees uh, that went through our program back in 2016 are, are still in discussions with potential partners or they've actually closed a deal. Some pilot programs that we're just getting running right now, um, one of them is we call our, our peer learning and networking or plan webinar series. And this is a series of webinars that we put on um, throughout the year. Our goal is about four webinars a year. and We'll pick a topic that uh, we know is of interest to the community based on feedback that we get, such as, for example, intellectual property strategy. And then we'll bring in experts to talk about uh, that strategy. And we'll bring in uh, companies um, that have, have been quite successful uh, on that topic that we are we, we have funded and um, through the program and they'll offer kind of their own lessons learned uh, We also recently launched uh, the application assistance program uh, which is um, it's open to um, Unawarded folks that are interested in applying to the SBR SCTR program, but they have been unsuccessful in uh, receiving funding in the past um, so um, in particular, with this program, we're, we're, we're trying to reach out to minority and women-owned businesses and trying to increase the number uh, that are participating in our program. And then uh, we're looking at uh, launching a couple new programs. One is to provide regulatory assistance to our companies, really um, uh, provide opportunities for our companies to interact with the FDA and to get advice on the regulatory strategies and, and really um, offer guidance and advice as companies are moving through the development process on the regulatory strategy. So we actually just hired a fellow who's going to be uh, really leading our efforts in this area. And then uh, we're going to be launching a new mentoring program uh, this coming year where we're going to be uh, creating a peer-to-peer -peer mentoring program where we'll pull uh, more uh, uh, serial entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurs that we have funded in the past, and we'll, we'll connect them together with some of the more junior uh, companies in our portfolio, and, and they'll share their own experiences and, 
and really um, uh, help address needs that each other have. So that's a program that we're planning to launch probably early next year. So that's the uh, end of my presentation. Um, I think uh, I can take one question before we move on. Yeah. Does every NIH Institute have its own similar SBR development center, or is NCI unique in that? Uh, we are we are unique in that um, we're the only uh, we're the only uh, institute that has put together a center that manages all the awards and then also offers these other services. There there have been a couple of other institutes like the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Um, that offer some of the other services that I mentioned um, to their awardees, but they don't they, they don't manage the um, awards themselves. Um, but we, we like the model. Okay, we're going to keep keep things moving. Moving on to Corey here. Thank you. All right, so I also have a couple slides on, on the bridge funding program that Michael talked about, but just in the interest of time, since he gave such a nice overview, I'll just skip over them. Um, so Michael mentioned a lot uh, that we fund through two mechanisms in the SBR program at NCI. One's a grant, one's a contract, and, and so I just want to start by sort of covering some of the differences um, between these, because there are some critical differences. So um, grants are, as he mentioned, Mostly our grant portfolio comes through the omnibus solicitation, which is just not, we don't prescribe anything. It's investigator initiated. Any idea you have, as long as it has a cancer indication uh, and you're a small business, it would be appropriate uh, to apply to the, to the omnibus solicitation. Um, there are some advantages to that. So one is that the receipt date is three times a year. So September 5th, January 5th, and April 5th are the three dates that we receive applications through the omnibus solicitation and and we're a lot we we try to be very approachable as program directors so if you send us your specific aims at least a month before the deadline we're happy to talk with you give you feedback um, especially we read a lot of summary statements we see a lot of, of applications so we can sometimes give you feedback like um, you know quantitative milestones on your aims page is something especially people that are new to the SBIR program tend to to leave off um, sometimes the AIMS page is not quite as product-driven as, as it needs to be for SBIR, so we'll give you that um, type of feedback. We'll also let you know this, it, you, you might be in a crowded space, and if you're in a crowded space that we see a lot in the SBIR program, you may need to really differentiate yourself um, from other things we've funded. So we're happy to provide that feedback if you contact us. Um, contracts, on the other hand, are a lot more restrictive. Um, they, we only have one receipt date in the fall for contracts annually. Usually the announcement for our contract topics comes out in July, late July, early August, and the due date is sometime in October. I believe this year it's October 22nd um, is the deadline for our contract topics. So um, these, this is how the NCI SBIR program really puts out our technology-specific funding announcements <laughs> is through um, the announcement of R&D contract opportunities. And th these are very prescriptive. They're milestone-based. Um, we'll have a list of activities and deliverables that we think we want you um, to carry out in phase one and phase two. Um, so it, 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 and then there's a lot of reporting back to our program 
um, on, on your progress. So they are just administratively two very different types of funding. Um, but oftentimes because the peer review for contracts is it's in-house at, at NCI and, and there are um, sort of special emphasis panels for those contract topics. If you have a technology that aligns with a contract topic that we've announced, um, you know, we encourage people to really think, um, think about funding through, through an R&D contract uh, instead of a grant. Um, the, the one different, one of the big differences you'll find with R&D contracts is that we cannot really answer questions. They fall under normal federal contracting um, rules and laws. And so uh, for fair contracting, we can't give you any sort of tips because that would be unfair government contracting process, uh, practice. You can submit questions. Um, the solicitation has it. I think I'll, I'll have it up here uh, to the, the NCI contracts office and then the, the contracting officers can answer questions uh, sort of more broadly. So um, this is just a breakdown of our, our solicitations. Mike, Michael had a, a nice slide where he showed on the grant side um, sort of the, the big omnibus solicitation and then a few small bubbles that were correlating with technology-specific funding announcements. And so I'm sort of showing the same thing here. Um, our omnibus solicitation is in red. That's really how we get most of our, that's where we fund most of our grant applications. But we do have some other specific um, technology funding announcements that are grants that we've signed on to. Um, one is the IMAP program, which, which is the, the fourth one down there. That's really um, tool development, so looking for um, people who are developing new platforms or new tools to be used in a cancer research setting. Uh, we found some years ago that, that those weren't uh, reviewing quite as well among the omnibus, the, all the, the drugs and the, the medical devices, and so we put out a separate solicitation specifically for those. Um, and then our contract uh, solicitation down there at the bottom is our other big funding mechanism. Um, we also have an administrative, there, there's always administrative supplements, those are rolling, those are sort of an addition to an active award. We have a current one on the street right now um, for recruitment of um, women and minority uh, scientists to teach them about entrepreneurship and give them experience in a small business uh, setting. So um, that's something to look for. As I mentioned, I'll, I'll slip over those. Um, so how much do we spend in contracts? Quite a bit. It tends to be around 25 to 35% of our portfolio. In FY17, that was about $31 million. These are set-aside dollars that we have specifically for funding R&D contracts. And um, our R&D contract opportunities fall in sort of different, you can bin them into different uh, topic areas. So we have quite a few in the therapeutics that are therapeutics-related, imaging-related, um, uh, and then health IT and radiation therapy related, and then some other topics that are down there at the bottom. This, we also have this as a handout. So at, in the table right out here, um, there's a list of all of our contract opportunities, as well as the first slide I showed that's the difference between contract contracts and grants. Um, and there's also a one-pager that's just an overview of the program for people who are, are more are interested in SBIR. So if you have questions about contracts, as I mentioned, the program officers um, are not the right people to answer questions about R&D contract opportunities. Um, but Tiffany Chadwick in the NCI Office of Acquisitions is. Um, her email is here. It's also on the handout outside. So if you want to take a look 
at that. If you have any questions, please email Tiffany. I'm just going to go through one um, of the specific funding announcements, and, and that's the SBIR tech transfer announcement. Um, this is the goal here is to help intramural, so you know, discoveries out of NCI labs make it out into the small business space. Um, the, you can apply for funding with an, with an identified intramural discovery, and then, at, and then at time of award, you're given a license for that technology. Um, the right point of contact in our office is Christy Canaria, if you have more questions about this. The NCI Tech Transfer Center has a list of, of the available, um, the technologies that are available for license, so you can take a look at that and see if there's anything that's of interest to you. In addition to that, um, the NCI Tech Transfer Office helps uh, outside people partner with intramural or NCI investigators. Um, they've done this for, there's been quite a few of, of NCI uh, inventions that have made it onto the market and, and been uh, commercial success. So this is a model that the Tech Transfer Center um, is, is trying to formalize and, and help make more connections. The Tech Transfer Center has also recently announced a, um, a, an option, an evaluation option license. So under this new program, um, you're given two years to sort of evaluate it, of exclusivity to an NCI technology where it gives you time um, to evaluate how that technology could apply for your, or how you would use that technology. And then um, at the end of that, I think there's an option for an exclusive license if if benchmarks are hit and, and everything's working. Again, the same list of available um, technologies, if you go to techtransfer.cancer.gov, um, that, that's where the list of available technologies from NCI investigators can be found. Um, so eligible companies for this are, are companies that are less than five years old, um, have less than five million in capital, and fewer than 50 employees. And um, there's technologies available from not just NCI, but from multiple uh, institutes across NIH. So National Institute on Aging, um, I, I think the uh, National Institute on, on Minority Health Disparities and Minority Health, um, as, among, as well as others. And that's all. My, my portion was brief. I <laughs> gave you a lot of information quickly since we're sort of short on time. Um, but... Every, almost everything I covered, I think the Tech Transfer Center information is not on the handouts out there, so feel free to email one of us if you have more interest or look at the Tech Transfer Center website. Um, but everything else I covered is on handouts outside, so feel free to pick one up or stop one of us. Okay, so I'm batting cleanup today. Um, what I'm going to talk about um, are some tips for actually sitting down and writing your application um, when, once you're ready to apply to the program. And th the reason this is in the presentation is probably fairly obvious, but I would just say that um, in the old days, success rates for SBIR and STTR applications were uh, uh, much higher than they currently are. So over time, the success rates have steadily fallen for 
SBIR applications. We just at the NCI probably receive more than a thousand applications a year. So the program is very competitive, um, and it's really important to put together a strong application um, in order to get funded. Um, a lot of what I'm going to talk about today um, could probably be considered um, just good general grantsmanship uh, tips. Um, but if there's one thing and, and only one thing that you remembered from this presentation, uh, that would be um, to talk with us early and often about your plans to apply. Uh, Corey and Michael both mentioned that we are um, more than happy to give you some feedback on specific aims, how we think that might uh, be received by a peer review committee. Um, so that's probably the best thing that I can tell you, but um, I'm going to give you some more uh, specific details on things that we would recommend you think about before you apply. So common question we get is, is what is NCI looking for? Or if you're looking at another institute, what is the institute looking for? We're always looking for innovative solutions uh, to significant unmet clinical needs or other unmet needs in the biomedical community. Um, the thing that really differentiates SBIR from all the other basic research that NIH uh, supports is that your idea or your, your research focus should have um, a product in mind. There should be a significant commercial potential. Um, what we would like to see is that your project is leveraging the expertise of the, the company or the, the founder. Um, we expect that you will be seeking funding uh, in the phase one award portion to produce feasibility data. Um, perhaps you're generating a prototype for a device uh, or some other set of experiments that shows that the uh, uh, product has, has potential. Uh, and then in phase two, you come back to us and ask for a much larger award to carry on uh, follow-on development work. Uh, we encourage proposals both from startup companies. Um, in many cases, SBIR is the first money into a company, um, but also from established small businesses that are seeking um, perhaps to pursue some new projects. Maybe uh, the board is, is spending most of their time thinking about a particular product that's on a critical path to the clinic, um, but maybe somebody in the company has another great idea that they'd like to pursue, um, and SBIR can be a great way to support that type of work. <coughs> So let's talk just for a minute about when it's not really appropriate to think about the SBIR program. So we really discourage um, investigators from chasing NIH funding solicitations with this sort of why not give it a try attitude. We really hope that um, when you come to us, you have a fairly uh, focused idea. We're happy to help you flesh that out, um, but, but something that's not sort of haphazard and, and just looking for some dollars. Um, Michael mentioned that we are aware that timing of funding is, is critically important, especially for small companies, and we have been working hard to shorten the time between the time that, that you apply and when you actually receive your grant. Um, but the reality is uh, there's still a several-month period um, that it takes to get funding. And so if your company is in urgent need of cash, this is probably not the program for you because we are still the federal government and it takes us time uh, to do business. Um, I would say that it's, it's never a good idea to sort of come to us with what we would call a Me Too technology, um, one more product that has much the same uh, profile as, as many other products in that category. Um, if you're proposing something that, that has incremental innovation, um, it sort of depends on what that incremental innovation is and, and how much of an impact that's going to have uh, for your particular customer segment or segments that you're looking at. And that's something that we can talk about with you um, if you want to know um, what that means for your particular technology. 
Um, we discourage you from coming to us when there still is quite a bit of basic research that needs to be done uh, to demonstrate feasibility. If you're looking at uh, a new drug, potential uh, drug target um, that really has not been validated, uh, there's a lot more biology that, that is yet to be elucidated, that's really not the time to apply for SBIR. Um, and last, um, please don't come to us attempting to sort of bridge a funding gap when you've lost your R01. Um, like I said, we, we expect that your project will have a product focus, and often that's not uh, part of what a basic research program is all about. So um, before you write your application, we encourage you to consider your company's strengths and how to exploit those. Also consider your company's weaknesses and how you're going to address those, and there are different ways to do that. Um, again, this is sort of the one piece of advice that I, I can't say enough. Please contact us early and often. Um, it, we recommend at least a month before an application receipt date. We do tend to get inundated with calls. Um, but give us a draft of your specific aims and ask for some, some candid feedback. Um, as Corey mentioned, many, many of us have seen hundreds, if not thousands, of grant applications and summary statements. Um, we don't know your technology nearly as well as you do, but we have a pretty good idea of the landscape that you're competing within, so that can be pretty helpful. One thing you can do um, to sort of know where you fit, you can uh, review a similar currently funded projects um, using the NIH Project Reporter tool. Um, if you don't know what that is, um, this is the URL for that website. Um, it allows you to go in and search uh, for a particular funding mechanism. You can search by institute and you can search by keyword. So if you're interested in all, in all of the triple negative breast cancer projects that the NCI is funding through the small business program, you can look that up fairly easily. Um, we definitely encourage you to start early. Um, it takes a long time to develop a strong proposal. Um, please be sure to carefully read the funding solicitation so that you understand all of the key requirements. Um, obviously, uh, we expect that you'll assemble a strong scientific team. Uh, make sure that you're going to have access to all the facilities and resources that you'll need for the project. Very helpful to obtain letters of support. Um, not only from collaborators, but in some cases, it can be helpful if you have uh, downstream uh, end users who can actually provide a letter of support and speak to the unmet uh, market need, especially. Um, there are a number of uh, electronic registrations that you need before you can apply. Uh, and these are not things that you can do uh, within a day or two. Some of them take at least a couple of months uh, to get set up. So make sure that you have all of those in place before you sit down to write the application. Uh, all of that information that you need can be found in something called the SF424 application guide, uh, and that's hyperlinked uh, within all of the, at least the grant funding solicitation, so you can find that information. So second tip is um, to encourage you to take, take some time to refine your vision um, for, the, for the product and the project. Um, we would encourage you to start informal discussions very early on um, to, to, clar to begin clarifying that vision. Um, that can involve talking to not only technical experts, um, but as I mentioned, potential customers, um, investors who work in that space or, or have helped other companies to commercialize products in that space, um, and other potential commercialization partners, potentially um, that could include large companies and other stakeholders. Um, 
it's always a great idea to seek out people that have experience and have been successful before. And it sounds like you have a number of those folks uh, in the room who we're going to hear from. Um, so that would include current and prior uh, awardees, um, SBIR awardees. Um, sometimes it can just mean an academic collaborator that has a lot of grant writing experience. Um, as I've said, the, the focus of an SBIR is to work on a project with commercial potential, but there are a number of elements of good grantsmanship um, that folks that have had a successful R01 program um, can give you some advice on. Professional grant writers can be helpful. Um, very often they uh, have helped uh, a number of uh, clients write successful grants. But again, I would not um, encourage you to re rely on their information as necessarily the best information. Oftentimes, program staff at the NIH are going to have more up-to-date uh, information on agency priorities, um, the current uh, funding environment, and current NIH policies, um, which, which will impact your application. Um, something that folks sometimes will tend to um, forget about or not consider is uh, when preparing a study design to think about risk and what happens if AIM-1 doesn't work out as planned, is our AIMs 2 and 3 of a grant uh, directly dependent on AIM-1 being successful. And so the way to uh, mitigate that uh, potential problem with reviewers is to pre present some alternative strategies. Um, if you encounter problems or things that might be unexpected, how are you going to overcome that uh, during the course of the project? Third tip is to make sure that you've assembled the right team to get the work done. Um, obviously, you want to have a principal investigator with the right expertise. Um, in cases where there's a, a multidisciplinary project, maybe you, there's a heavy engineering component to your project, uh, and, and you also need to be interfacing with clinicians, Make sure you've covered all of those uh, areas, and sometimes the best way to do that is through a multi, uh, what we call a multi-PI team. Uh, and then more generally, um, consider where there are gaps uh, in expertise uh, and how you're going to fill those. Um, sometimes that will include uh, different collaborators. Very often, um, particularly for drug development projects, that would include working with the right CROs. Um, again, sometimes uh, that can mean working with a, a large strategic partner. Um, and sometimes it can be extremely helpful to bring someone on, at least as a consultant, who's what we would call a seasoned entrepreneur um, who understands product development and has experience, uh, particularly if that's in the space uh, that you're proposing to work in. Uh, tip four should go without saying. Um, you would be surprised how many applications we get where um, folks have maybe cut and paste from other applications or um, sometimes spelling errors and those types of things, um, that, that really can hurt you uh, more than you might expect in review. Um, one of the most important elements of your application is to write a very clear specific aims page. This is the, the first thing uh, very often that the reviewers will see, um, and it can if, you, if it's done correctly, it can really grab their attention and pull them in to the rest of the application. Um, obviously, you want to highlight the technology's strengths. You want to be very specific about the goals of the project uh, and even include in that page quantitative milestones, if you can describe what those are. Um, you want to make sure that you've really clarified what the unmet need is that you're proposing to address. 
Uh, and again, you can provide this page to us for feedback. We're happy to uh, uh, help give you some pointers on how to clarify things or, or um, describe things in a, in a clear way. What comes after the specific aims page is then the research strategy. So this is the um, full explanation of uh, what you're going to be doing during the course of the project. Uh, this should include a very clear background section that provides uh, a few more of the details on, on the unmet need and the background of the project. Um, make sure you provide a very detailed uh, technical plan to achieve the specific aims. Um, you want to make sure that you're proposing activities that are reasonable for uh, the, the project period uh, for, for the grant. So whether that's a phase one, very often that's a six-month to a 12-month study. Phase two SBIRs typically range um, from two to three years. So you want to make sure that you're not um, proposing activities that are too ambitious to fit within that time frame. Uh, and again, I've already talked about um, making sure you address uh, alternative strategies and, and pitfalls uh, in case you run into problems along the way. Uh, other components that, that help to make for a strong application, I already mentioned letters of support. Um, uh, these are almost always necessary from consultants and collaborators, uh, and they can also be helpful endorsements, like I said, from end users, uh, clinicians, other folks who are, are stakeholders uh, downstream if the project, project is successful. For the phase two applications, in addition to the research strategy section, you're also required to include a 12-page commercialization plan uh, in the application. Um, so this would include things like uh, your long-term financing strategy, uh, your plans for regulatory strategy, how are you going to build out the other uh, infrastructure within the company to be successful. All of that would go into the commercialization plan. Obviously, you want to include very clear and detailed budgets, um, clear descriptions of facilities and equipment, uh, at your disposal during the project. Uh, if you're working with human subjects, NIH has very clear requirements as far as describing uh, how those studies are going to be conducted uh, and policies and regulations that you need to meet, uh, as well as for vertebrate animals. Um, the next tip I'll say is that it can be very helpful after you have written your own application um, to, to sort of try to conduct your own peer review um, to the extent that you can do that. Um, so you, before you submit, read your application as if you were a reviewer. Um, and I would encourage you to particularly think about um, being in the room and having only the written application to go by. We as program staff have the luxury of being able to interact with you up until the time you submit which means that we can have a back-and-forth dialogue. You don't get to have that back-and-forth dialogue with reviewers. So if you've forgotten to include a reference or a key piece of data, it's as if it doesn't exist um, if they didn't see it. So um, try to read your, your own application with that type of a critical eye. Again, uh, try to evaluate what you think some of the weaknesses are. And don't try to hide those because... Um, I can tell you that in almost every case, the re reviewers will find them. Uh, and it's a much better strategy to address them head on uh, and indicate how you're going to deal with that issue as, as the project moves forward. Um, ask collaborators to critically review the, collabor the uh, application uh, to the extent that you have those folks available to you. Uh, and if you can, um, sometimes it's even helpful to get feedback from 
independent readers, folks who maybe don't even have uh, a lot of technical expertise in your area of work, um, just to see if they understand the high-level goals uh, and are they excited about how your uh, project addresses an unmet need. Um, definitely make sure that you understand and appreciate what the NIH review criteria are. Um, SBIR uses the same five uh, core criteria that all other NIH applications use, so that includes the significance of the problem, the approach that you're taking to address the problem, how innovative is the solution, uh, how qualified are the investigators on the team, and how supportive uh, and, and complete is the environment, including the facilities and resources. And then for SBIR, we have this uh, uh, sixth criteria, which includes the commercialization uh, potential uh, for the idea. So what happens if you're not funded? Um, if we get over 1,000 applications a year, uh, and we only fund maybe 150 competing projects a year, uh, there are a lot of folks that don't get funded. Uh, that's the reality. Um, we understand that a lot of time and effort um, goes into preparing an application, and it's painful um, when you get a very critical review. But um, this feedback from the reviewers provides your roadmap for next steps for a resubmission application. Um, so the, you will receive written feedback from reviewers in the form of a, a summary statement. Um, we would encourage you to um, discuss that document with your program director. Um, very often, the program director will have a perspective on some of those comments that perhaps isn't coming through to you as the applicant. Uh, so make sure you pick up the phone and, and uh, speak with us about um, the feedback and what you can do next. Um, we'd encourage you to revise and resubmit the application. Um, it's very common for applications uh, to improve significantly between the first and second uh, submission, uh, and in fact go from not being fundable to being in the fundable range. So we definitely encourage you to resubmit. In that resubmission application, you are allowed to include what we call an introduction page, uh, and that provides you the opportunity to address specific reviewer critiques that came up the first time around and how you uh, are proposing to address those in the resubmission. Um, I can't emphasize the next point enough. Um, as hard as it can be to hear um, uh, what you consider to be very critical comments, um, please try to be constructive in your response to reviewer critiques, not, not defensive. It's certainly fair to uh, rebut things that are factually incorrect or to provide a different reference to underscore a point that the reviewers may have missed, um, but, but it's never a good idea to say, None of the reviewers on the committee knew what they were talking about, and we are the experts, so you should uh, uh, get your act together and fund this application. That, that tends to not go over so well. Um, and just do everything you can. I, I would encourage you to do everything you can to learn more about the SBIR and STTR grant process. Talk to successful applicants. Um, maybe learn from their mistakes if you can so that you don't make them yourself. Um, and understand how the review process and dynamics work so that you can present um, the best possible application. So just a, in the last minute or two, I'll mention some common pitfalls that people can run into. Um, sometimes reviewers will, will come back to you and, and not show much of an appreciation for the problem that you're working on or how significant it is. So 
I would encourage you to try to consider the comments that you're getting from the point of view of the reviewers and um, perhaps their knowledge of clinical practice or other relevant sector or, uh, or customer segment uh, that may not be as familiar to you as it is to them as an expert. Um, try to address reviewer comments in an evidence-based fashion. Again, try not to say you don't know what you're talking about. Try to say this body of literature has clearly demonstrated X, Y, and Z, and that's why we're taking this project in this direction. Um, and try to be very specific, uh, specific and quantitative when you present that supporting data. Um, sometimes it can be helpful to obtain additional letters of support um, from folks who can confirm what it is that you're saying, um, but perhaps if someone in business development at Pfizer is saying it, and that can go in as a letter of support, uh, that can have, uh, that can resonate with the reviewers or have more of an impact uh, than it just coming from you. So what if the reviewers just simply don't understand your proposal? Um, well, one simple explanation could be that it just wasn't very clearly written. Um, make sure, again, that you've checked for spelling errors, grammatical errors. Um, maybe in some cases you have not clearly labeled figures. Um, these sound like very simple things, but, but we get a lot of applications that, that fail to do some, some pretty straightforward things. Um, and that can be a big, big problem in review. Maybe you haven't provided enough data, or maybe you've provided descriptions of the technology that are a little bit too vague. Maybe you're proposing some medicinal chemistry and you haven't been specific about the, the aspects of the compound that you're proposing to optimize, whether that's solubility or potency. Um, make sure to the extent that you can um, that you present the key data or the key figures in the application. Um, you are limited for space, so it's always a good idea, idea to reference publications when, when necessary. Um, but if there are one or two key figures that really drive home uh, the, the scientific points that you want to make, um, we would encourage you to include those in the actual application. Um, what if the reviewers look at your project and say this team uh, isn't the right team, they don't have the right expertise? Um, sometimes that's, fixing that problem is just a matter of providing more explanation about the team member's background. Maybe you didn't expand on Dr. Smith's uh, 37 years of experience in cancer immunology, uh, and that was just lost on the reviewers. Um, sometimes uh, you do need to add consultants or, or new collaborators, um, and so that can be the other way to help address that problem. Um, if the PI has gaps in his or her expertise, Again, you can consider a multi-PI team. Um, uh, make sure that all the collaborators, uh, at least the key personnel, have helped to review the proposal to help you identify any gaps that may exist. Um, and something that's very helpful for the reviewers is to include um, a management plan. It doesn't have to be long, but something that, that very clearly describes who the key personnel are on the grant and how their background and experience lines up with the activities that they will be performing on the project. Um, uh, and then I think this is my last slide. In terms of the budget, um, make sure that the budget that you're requesting uh, is determined by the needs of the project. Um, Michael mentioned what some of the statutory requirements are um, for the SBIR program. Uh, for SBIR, again, two-thirds of a phase one project and at least half of a phase two project must be done within the company. Um, th th those numbers are by, by the budget. Um, for STTR, 
there is a statutory requirement that we cannot deviate from that says at least 40% of the work must be done at the company and at least 30% of the work must be done at a research institution. Uh, the, the other 30% can be uh, divvied up however is most appropriate for your project. Um, work can be outsourced to subcontractors. Um, I would mention that certain fee-for-service activities can be charged as direct costs to the company. And so that's very often a helpful conversation to have with your program director uh, around your specific project to understand um, how to fit some of the budget pieces together uh, that works best for you. So that is all I had. And um, I guess we're free to take questions um, to the extent that there are questions. Now we'll move on to part uh, two, which are our North Cotton Cancer Center uh, case studies. Um, and we are going to start with Jake. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jake Rader. I'm co-founder and CEO of Sildara Medical, but I'm also the director of New Ventures here at the medical school. Okay. All right. Hello up there. Um, I guess while I'm suiting up here, uh, I'll add one more bit of data. Um, Andy and Michael both mentioned that it takes uh, eight months to go from an application to a, a notice of award. And that sounds like an incredibly long period of time. It also happens to be the exact same amount of time that it takes to go from a term sheet to a closed venture deal. And so it's really not that long. And to, to be able to say that the venture capitalists who are so speedy and so entrepreneurial, they take the exact same amount of time as the federal government. So just dispelling one myth there, um, I think the improvement from the 12 months to the, to the eight has made a big difference for the community. Um, but I was asked not to talk about the uh, SBI program per se, but to give you a case study of how uh, we've benefited from it, uh, we being both Dartmouth and the company Seldar Medical. Um, so this is the case study. And I'll give you a little bit of background. I'll give you the overarching picture of what the whole project looked like, and then I'll just tell you how it proceeded uh, afterwards. Uh, I've, I've only got 10 minutes here, so I'll give you some headlines. Uh, today, everyone in this room is very well familiar with CAR T-cell therapies. Um, back in 2009, when, we, when I first met uh, Charles Sentman, uh, this was pretty new stuff, and I don't even think they called them CAR T-cells at that point. Um, what it could do, though, was stop any conversation in biotech or pharma. If you said cell therapy to any large company, they immediately said, time out, we don't want to talk to you about it. It's too complicated, it's too expensive. Even if it's working, uh, we, we really don't, uh, we don't care. And so that was somewhat frustrating because uh, Charles had uh, some really exceptional preclinical data, uh, some proof of concept in, in mirroring models. And, and we got quite excited about that. And we said, you know what, we're going to try to work on this anyways. And uh, the, the specific project that we're going to talk about resulted from a, uh, a fact-finding mission. It wasn't exactly a, an I-Corps uh, project, 
but it was uh, Mike Fanger uh, taking Charles and I to New York to talk with a couple people who knew a few things about cellular therapies, uh, Carl June and Jean-Louis Romé-Lamont. And we went and we spoke with them. Uh, we had some other meetings. And what became very clear was the cost of goods and the complexity around manufacturing weren't just you know, theoretical problems that someone else was going to solve. These were real roadblocks for CAR-T uh, in the future. And uh, Mike, I think, had other board meetings in the city at that time. And I got in a car and drove back from New York, uh, back to Hanover with Charles. And not being a, a biologist by training, I got to sit in the passenger seat and ask all the stupid questions about why I couldn't take cells from Rick and put them into me and engineer them and do all that sort of thing. Um, by the time we got back to Hanover, Charles had three concepts for how uh, allogeneic car uh, T-cell therapies could be created. A few weeks later, he came up with a fourth. And from those four strategic ideas, uh, the scientific team eventually created 19 different things that we were going to try. And we got a little bit excited about this because we saw the potential. Now you've got a uh, potentially very impactful uh, therapeutic modality, and you've also got something where you can actually control the quality of it. You can create a, a product rather than a process, and you can bring the cost of goods down by two orders of magnitude. So we got kind of excited. We filed a patent on it. And this is how it proceeded. So... Back in 2010, we actually started working. Um, as many of you know, we started originally on an autologous uh, NKG2D-targeted uh, CAR-T therapy, but we had had this idea about this allogeneic IP. And so uh, Dartmouth filed uh, some IP very, very early on, and that went through prosecution over the years as we were doing the development uh, preclinically. Uh, we wrote a, a grant application to NCI, and the first time it went in, it didn't get funded. The second time it went in, it got funded. And that's really saying something in that no one had ever done this before. We had no data, but we had what we thought was a pretty good idea. And this was a topic at that time. It's easy to look back now and say, oh, yeah, this was a really great idea. But at that time, nobody wanted to talk about cellular therapy. But the NCI took a chance on this, and they put almost $400,000 to work. And that allowed us to take those 19 different constructs and uh, test them. We tested them all, and some of them worked. Um, so in 2015, we packaged up a number of these uh, intellectual property and therapeutic assets, spun them out as a company called OnSite, and we sold those to a European company. Um, we continued to do tech transfer and then ongoing R&D support. And uh, this European company, Celiad, has since uh, expanded the number of clinical trials, both for the autologous and the allogeneic therapies. And so that's the overarching bit. I'll tell you a few more stories in the few minutes I have left here. But this is uh, the acquisition uh, back in 2015. Uh, soon after that, so there were a number of people that were interested by that point in potentially acquiring these assets from us. One of them was Ono Pharmaceuticals. Uh, ONO was very interested, but they weren't able to move at the pace that we needed to move the actual closing of the deal. Uh, and so I think 18 months later, uh, they went to Celiad and uh, got a license. And they didn't get a license to the lead asset per se. They were primarily interested in the uh, allogeneic technology that we had developed under the NCI SBIR. And so that's what that deal was. Then... Um, 
The patent was actually granted, and there, this is actually quite a long and, I think, fascinating story, but um, the uh, first independent claim was actually extremely broad, and it talks about a dysfunctional uh, uh, TCR on a CAR-T. That's really it. And so that's a very, very broad patent claim. And uh, so many people were trying to invalidate this patent quietly in the background, lots of law firms act active, that sort of thing. The UP USPTO uh, PTO, uh, heard three different um, arguments. Uh, none of the claims changed one whit, and eventually the USPTO said, we're not going to hear anymore, that's it. This is a valid patent, and it stands. And so now this has been uh, tested by fire and is an exceptionally uh, valuable piece of intellectual property. Novartis, as soon as that happened, Novartis went and they did a deal with Celiad. Uh, Celiad then came back to us and to Dartmouth and said, um, you know, we want more flexibility in order to do more deals and to do more things. And so we renegotiated the terms of our acquisition agreement with them uh, last year. And um, now this is from the uh, autologous, not the allogeneic CAR-T, but they're starting to see some uh, clinical activity, which is, of course, the, the reason we do all of this in the first place. So this is uh, uniquely exciting. Uh, there are now uh, five different autologous trials that are ongoing on two continents for seven different cancer types. And as of a, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, uh, the uh, allogeneic uh, platform has its first uh, its first thing in the clinic, and so this is exceptionally exciting as well. And so now there are two different products that were uh, brought up through this uh, process and are now in the clinic uh, being tested. So the, that first patent expanded. Uh, there are now what is that seven granted U.S. patents, lots of foreign filings that are granted, lots of foreign applications in process. Uh, it speaks to the value of what it is that's going on here. And then just to be uh, a little bit inflammatory, I'll try to predict the future here. I think at some point somebody's going to figure out how to treat solid tumors with CAR T cells. There's going to be something special, I think, that'll be required, but that's going to happen. Um, I am very certain that eventually allogeneic therapies are going to replace autologous therapies. There's just too much drive, and the, the barriers to doing that are not that high. And these inventions, which would not have been possible without NCI's SBIR support, would not have been possible without the Norris Cotton Cancer Center, these are, in my mind, some of the most valuable intellectual assets that are available in medicine today, especially if those first two assumptions come true. So um, thank you very much to NCI. Thank you to Norris Cotton. And if we have time, I'll take a question or two. Quiet bunch today. I can't believe you guys were all here. It's over. It's like an hour and a half now into this. But anyway, I'll try to keep everyone going. <clears throat> um, basically, I'm going to talk now about a device, so um, different than, um, than Jake. And, and when Andy was talking, he basically said that you had to have an unmet clinical need. And um, oh, let me just hold on. It's going. Um, and that's what we're going to start with right here is, you know, sort of the unmet clinical need. Um, 
So basically, uh, our device is, is uh, to try to make breast cancer surgery more accurate and more precise. Um, so the uh, current technique of removing breast cancer is uh, wire localization, and it's very imprecise in that when patients have lumpectomies, about 25% of the time they'll have positive margins. And our goal in current surgical is to try to get that down to less than 5% with our device. Um, it's inconvenient, and patients really don't like having a wire placed in their breast before their surgery so that we can try to I identify it. To come up with our, you know, sort of product, uh, we had to have a couple of innovations. One is that um, we wanted to use the most sensitive way to detect breast cancer, and that's MRI, the most sensitive imaging technique. But the way it's done now, it's done with a woman lying on her belly, so the breast is prone. And we're, I'm operating on them with their lying on their back, so they're going to be, um, the breast is going to look completely different. So first we had to say, all right, let's, let's image women when they're lying on their back with your MRIs. So that was the first thing. And as you can see here, the breast prone, and there's the cancer, is that big white thing in the middle of it, and the breast supine look completely different. Um, so we wanted to basically first then develop a way to image women in, their, in the supine position, okay, so on their back. And then from that, we wanted to create a 3D image of where the, where the cancer is in the breast. So as a surgeon, that's what I really needed. I just didn't need this wire kind of going in the breast and not quite sure where it went to the cancer, but I needed a real 3D image of the cancer in the breast. So what we can do, we can take these supine MRI images, have a radiologist basically outline, like as you can see in yellow, the edges of the cancer on, on successive um, uh, images, and then basically create a 3D image of the cancer in the breast. Um, so the cancer there is that gray thing, and you can see it's um, projected onto the surface with the, red, with the red lines. And basically, if you can do that and then display that in the, in the operating room, which is what we're able to do now, we know exactly the distance from the skin to the cancer, from the cancer to the chest wall. Well, how about figuring out where are the edges of the cancer, though? That was the piece that we had to try to come up with. And at first, we um, used an optical scanning method um, to be able to, uh, to identify that. And so my collaborators on this are two engineers, Venkat Krishaswamy and, and uh, Keith Paulson. And basically, Keith had been working on this in brain imaging for a long time. And so when we started this, basically he said, okay, well, what can we do? And we came up with a initially a, um, an optical scanning uh, technique to be able to identify where the edges of the cancer was. And we started, we started doing that for a while, and I'll give you the timeline of sort of how this was funded and everything in a couple of slides. But, and we realized that it was kind of clunky, and I needed Venkat and the OR with me all the time, okay, to do it. So I had to think of some, a simpler way to, to end up doing it. And so that's when we came up with the idea with a breast cancer locator. So, what this is, is it takes that three-dimensional tumor information of where the cancer, positional information, where the cancer is in the breast, and it creates this device, which is a 3D-printed plastic bra-like form that you can place on the breast, and it allows then the surgeon to transmit cues um, onto the breast surface. So you can see there's a, a kind of a, a couple of uh, alignment holes. So the, the, breast, the nipple is there, and another alignment hole to make sure we have this thing lined up correctly. And then the, we can um, just mark the edges of the cancer as projected up to the skin surface through those little holes right there. And then we can inject in our first iteration, we injected little, a little bit of blue dye just a centimeter away from the edge of the cancer. So when we were in there operating, we could see the blue dye and, and know that we're right around the edges of the cancer. And then we put another um, uh, wire that goes directly into the middle of the cancer, which surgeons are familiar with. Now, the good thing about this is any surgeon can do this, so this is something that, you know, doesn't require a whole lot of extra learning by surgeons. 
So here we are using it on a patient, um, just marking the edges of the cancer on the breast skin, injecting a little bit of blue dye, putting the wire in, and we take it off then and then can remove the specimen with uh, the wire in the middle and a little bit of blue dye on all the edges. So we kind of can do optimally precise breast cancer surgery so that these patients don't have to go back in and have extra surgery and don't have to have a lot of excess tissue removed, which also impacts on, on ultimate cosmesis. Well, we used this in uh, we, we used this device in 20 patients. So we we, we got a printer and we built this and um, used it in patients. And we found that it was really very easy to use. It was safe, and it accurately localized breast cancers in in our in the 20 patients that we we initially tested. So then we had a product now, right? And we had to come up with a product name. So um, you know, uh, and we had to, we wanted to form a company so that we could actually make a difference with this, right? So. Uh, uh, so what well, we came up with is the name of Karen Surgical. So I don't know, here in New Hampshire, you know, guys are in the, from Washington area don't, aren't familiar with hiking so much, but we're here, we do a lot of hiking. And so this is a, a, a rock cairn, which to shows you the way when you're hiking up above treeline. And, and that's Mount Washington in the background and get really foggy and everything up there. And these rock cairns are about every 100 feet or so apart, and you can kind of follow them along. So we ended up calling this Karen Surgical. And here's a picture then of uh, Venkat and Keith and myself. Um, who uh, were the founding members. Um, we have uh, now, with the help of SVIR money, been able to hire a CEO, Dave Danielson, who has an MBA from Tuck, and we have a board of directors, and you know, um, we didn't have to look too far to, to have some real expert people around here, in particular Aaron Kaplan, um, who is uh, uh, one of our cardiologists here, is, um, uh, has a lot of great track record in entrepreneurship, and then um, Jake, who you've just uh, heard from. So I'll spend most of the rest of the time just kind of on this, on this slide. Um, and it kind of just gives, I guess, the timeline of how things have gone for us. Um, so it's hard to believe. Um, it was nine years ago that we first had this idea, um, you know, to try to be able to make more, um, more precise breast cancer surgery. And wrote a, I wrote a clinical trial then, 0928. So uh, um, that's really when it started. And that had two prongs to it. One was, was initially using this... Um, uh, optical scanning image technology in patients with palpable cancers to demonstrate the technology. And then we we're going to basically do, in the second phase, a randomized trial comparing our new technology to wire localization. So our first um, grant then was from the Dartmouth Synergy Program, um, a, uh, where that pilot grant of um, 34000 enabled us to um, just start doing supine MRIs and start um, trying to correlate the um, merging the images from supine MRI into an optical scan of the breast so that we could initially start this. And we had, um, we had good results in that with palpable cancers and enough to be, have preliminary data to, to apply for an R21 grant from the NCI, which, um, which we did and, and fortunately were funded in that. And that has funded then this clinical trial where we're comparing our sort of first generation technology, which is a combination of optical scanning and supine MRI imaging to wire localization. And we, we really, if you go back to 2018, we just have that study, which is about 140 patients we randomized. We just have that data now um, showing that uh, it's, we have really quite promising results um, from, those, uh, from that uh, initial uh, evaluation. Like I said, when we were doing our initial, um, our initial studies, we kind of um, thought about the breast cancer locator. And that really having the time to think about this um, largely came from our synergy program here, too, where um, uh, Aaron Kaplan came to the surgery grand rounds and talked about 
how there was this program. It was going to fund a day a week for uh, clinicians to try to learn about business and, and what intellectual property was and everything else. And so um, I ended up um, applying for that and was fortunate to uh, receive one of those fellowships. And it, and it allowed me to take a little more time to sort of think about some things. Um, we also, at the same time, got some philanthropic funding from, um, from uh, an angel, not investor, but just an angel funder um, from our area. And it's that when, that's when we just kind of thought of this idea of making this uh, 3D printed device to be able to, uh, to guide our surgery. And then it was late in 2015 that we, um, that Venkat, Keith, and I uh, formed uh, Karen Surgical. Um, it was, it was as soon as we formed it, we basically, you know, knew very well about the SBIR mechanism and so applied for, um, for a grant and we're fortunate to have um, received a, a phase one grant, which um, really allowed us to start to do that clinical trial that I showed you where we, we, we used the breast cancer locator in patients to show that, in fact, um, it accurately um, uh, located uh, uh, cancer. Since then, um, we've, uh, we've moved forward then and uh, I've gotten a, a grant from, um, from the state of New Hampshire and a phase two SVR grant, um, which gave us really this ability to, to get it from um, kind of a um, sort of a kind of ad hoc, I think, guess um, you can describe it. I mean, we met every week, um, Keith and Venkat and I, but now we've got a CEO on board. We have um, several other people who are involved with us. We have a board of directors. We have... MRI technologist who's, who works with us, and it really took it from, um, you know, sort of just in fledgling attempts up to now something that's um, really got a, a, a vision and, uh, and a, a path to success. Um, so we've, um, we've, in this year, we've started a multi-center um, uh, trial with the breast cancer locator. So the hospitals in Rhode Island and Massachusetts are surgeons there are also using our device, giving us feedback on it. We're trying to make sure all the technology from patients having their MRIs in their local area, the images have to get sent up here. We construct it, send it back down to those surgeons to use, that that all works. Um, we're addressing potential challenges to adoption of the technology by um, sort of merging a, um, uh, sort of flipping patients over, if you would, having their standard prone MRI and then just flipping them over with the same uh, contrast injection, getting the supine images we need to create the breast cancer locator. So that's the prone to supine MRI trial. I think our, um, we've got a, a big challenge this year um, uh, is to go down to the FDA and try to get um, 510K approval for this. So that's, um, that's something we're working on right now. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's us in a nutshell. Um, here's our, our overview um, with what we're envisioning in the future. I think from a clinical standpoint, our main goal is to uh, now use the breast cancer locator in a pivotal clinical trial comparing the positive margin rate using that to using wire localized lumpectomy. And, I th and based on our initial studies, um, I, I feel real confident that we're going to be able to have very low positive margin rate. And I think we're really going to make a difference in a lot of women out there because they're not going to have to come back in and have a second surgery. Um, and we're going to be able to do um, our breast cancer surgery a lot more precisely. So happy to answer any questions you might have. Technical question. How long would it take from a woman in some remote place getting her MRI until you've shipped back the 3D printed device for the surgery? One week. So, yeah, it's, uh, they can, these 3D printers are pretty quick, you know, so we can make it, sterilize it, 
test it, make sure it's okay, ship it, and get it to the surgeon within a week. That's our, that's what we can do. So, um, and that's, well, if I see someone in my office, you know, usually we're booking out a couple of weeks, um, you know, two, three weeks before they're going to actually have the surgery, just in terms of anyone's, you know, a busy surgeon, they're going to, it's probably about that anyway. So it's well within the clinical, you know, sort of um, constraints. Steve? So uh, perhaps in a way that was planned, but not by me, we heard we're hearing about cellular therapy today, device-based uh, <laughs> uh, therapy and small molecule therapies. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to ask Mike, what, 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 uh, what's the distribution of the portfolio? You might have mentioned it at SBR between kind of the device and, and drugs. It was weighted towards drugs, but devices were well represented as I recall. Yeah, so um, therapeutics tend to range around 35% of the portfolio. Uh, Device, uh, devices that include imaging related. Imaging is a large part of our portfolio, maybe around 20% of the overall portfolio. And then we have surgical devices more in the about 10% range. So, um, you know, devices is a very key, key part of the portfolio. Some of our biggest successes come in the device here. Okay, yes? outside the institution for the polyvirus morphological changes and biochemical changes in the breast from when you do the first scanning procedures to actually develop in your No, it's pretty immediate, Lionel. I mean, it's within a week. So uh, they'll have the supine MRI, and, we've, um, and then uh, they're positioned on the MRI table exactly how they're positioned in the OR. And this is kind of a rigid device anyway, so if there's any little tiny movement of the breast, it will... It'll sort of fit into that. If you're going to do it in more distant places, are there procedures within your MRIs that are so structured that you're going to get the sort of same quality? Yes, yeah, exactly. So we had, you know, so part of this, we had to develop the way to do supine MRIs in addition to it, and that's been some of the some of the funding that we've received from the FBR is to try to do that. So we've, we've along with inventing this, we've, been, we've sort of come up with a special um, sort of foam um, support that you can place between a women's breast to hold the body coil so that a standard body coil that's you, that every hospital has, okay, with whether it's a Siemens or a Philips or a GE MRI machine, they're going to have that body coil there. So, you know, it's, so we can just then use our little foam support, place it over there. So we're, so we're, we've, um, we've had to develop that as well. Um, yeah, but the, Yes. Really nice. Just to follow up on that, Thanks. what about changes during the menstrual cycle? Do you, do you, do you pick a particular stage of the cycle? Because breast size certainly does change proliferative versus secretory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so again, it's, it's within, you know, it's going to be within a week or two. Um, so it won't make it, yeah, it won't make a difference probably. So, but Chuck, good thought. We hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about it. Thanks. Linda? Do you think this, not to say this went easily for you, I can see there was a lot of work, but was it somewhat helpful that this, anybody can understand the problem and the solution? Um, I mean, everyone sure. knows that things are different when the person is late. Yeah, well, I'm glad every, I'm glad you could you know you could understand it really easily. So it is pretty straightforward. Us surgeons, you know, we just deal with straightforward problems. You know, that's it. So uh, don't want to do anything too complicated for us. You know, so I, mean, I, I know that it wasn't. I know that it wasn't simple. But when you're taking it forward and you had to talk to not people that aren't surgeons and aren't 
radiologists. Well, I think the complicated part, Linda, associated with this was with the engineers is trying to say, okay, how can we make this 3D image picture? You know, that was the first initial problem that we started on. And, you know, it's like, okay, can we take this, a prone MRI and transform it into a supine MRI? You know, those initial thoughts. And so, you know, and it's been, I mean, honestly, one of the best things about working at Dartmouth is having, you know, the engineering school here and, and people that really want to collaborate and, and, and really excited about this stuff, you know, because, you know, Keith and Venkat really got all thrilled about this, and, and it was a PhD dissertation for someone at Thayer, Matt Pallone, to, to start doing this, you know. So, uh, but then we realized that we're not going to be able to transform a prone to, we have, we really need to do a supine one, and then, boom, and then, and then just developing, there's been a lot of technological things that have gone on, so, Initially, we thought we had to do this scan to be sure it was exactly right, but now we can just create the BCL from the MRI image because we can use the surface of the breast as seen on the MRI image to correct. So we kind of cut out that extra scanning thing. So it, it's, it's gone on, you know, there's been a couple of layers of development of technology now to where we're at a point that I think it's generally applicable to any surgeon anywhere to do something that's very simple for the surgeon with their technology, you know, with their abilities, um, with a low-tech thing. Um, so, uh, yeah. Okay. Yep.